Welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast, where we are practicing the art of kindness and civil discourse and authenticity and storytelling. Our goal is to foster a healthy dialogue about race relations in our community. We seek common ground for common good and hope these conversations encourage you to build authentic relationships outside your race or comfort zone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. This is uh, your host, Waylon Cubitt, and CeCe Jones-Davis. Hey, CeCe, how are you? Hey, good. Hey, everybody. Okay, we are doing a kind of a hybrid recording today, again, with me and our special guests, which I'm going to introduce to you in just a second, uh, are in the room together. We're socially distanced. We're like nine miles apart with masks and lots of... (laughs) <laughs> Lots of alcohol for our hands and stuff, but uh, so we're we're doing that. But Cece is with us via Zoom, and she didn't want to miss out on this conversation. If you've been on episode one, you need to uh, you know how exciting and how much we learned by having our guest today, Dr. Bob Blackburn. He is of the Oklahoma yeah. Historical Society, and this is episode number two of four uh, for the United Voice series that we are calling Race in Oklahoma History. We are so honored to have Dr. Blackburn with us. And before we get started, let me give you a little bit of information about Dr. Blackburn. He is the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. He is a renowned historian, archiver, speaker, and author of more than 20 books. He specializes in Oklahoma and Oklahoma City history. He is an absolute joy to listen to and to learn from. And we are so humbled that he has taken the time to record four episodes with us about race in Oklahoma. Episode one was a blast. I think we got him way off of what he was planning to talk to us about, but we're going to let just get out of his way today, Cece. Can we just get out of his way and let him flow? Right. So thank you yeah, so much. I have to say, I just need, I just want Dr. Blackburn to just tell us what we need to know. Right. Right. Did you have a special place you wanted to start with Dr. Blackburn? What's about right now today, Dr. Blackburn? Yeah. Did you have a special place you wanted to start or you just want to, want him to go, Cece? I just want him to go wherever you want to start with episode two. It's cool with me. I'm just listening. Well, one thing, uh, just an observation about having conversations in my role as a historian is that I've always found that it helps to talk about people. Yes. You know, once you get away from individuals and you start talking abstract and big communities and groups and the big themes that typically what you probably remember or don't remember from ninth grade history class, because most of us have a bad experience there. Right. Uh, and so what I found is it, it's it, you can engage people more quickly if you put it at the at the personal level. What was that person? Because we all understand lives, especially as older folks, we've seen our lives unfold. And putting that context, I think, helps. So I think we always need to remember we might talk, and I think that's one reason the Black Lives Matter has really engaged because it it started with the story of one person mm-hmm. and and the injustice done there as almost a symbol of, of, of mass injustice that is affecting the entire community. But the, the focus can always go back to one person in that particular context. Well, it's like me with history. I always like to go back to one person, if I can, to illustrate a story. That makes sense. And so you talked to us a little bit in episode one. You talked about one of the books that, that kind of got you going was uh, about B.C. Franklin. And so maybe you want to start with B.C. Franklin. 
I will. And BC and John Hope um, go together because another thing I've learned is that all of us really stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. Our mother, we learn from our mother and father. We learn from our aunts and uncles. We learn from grandparents. You know, my both of my grandmothers very critical to my my youth and who I am. And so we stand. We inherit that cultural baggage, right? And then we pass it down to our children and grandchildren. I have a three-year-old grandson right now, and I'm feeling this responsibility. I've got to make sure that he's educated and all these things that I never knew as a kid. And so uh, we all are part of of this chain of history. Well, in terms of BC, I want to start with his dad and then end with with BC's son, John Hope Franklin, who was so important to me personally. And this whole story really started with John Hope because he called me in 1994 or 95, and of course I knew who he was, and the minute he was on the phone with me, one of my heroes, uh, and at that time he had just been given the Freedom Medal of Freedom. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, you know, he's a national hero. By this time I knew he was from Oklahoma. Well, here he's on the phone. And he's saying, Dr. Blackburn. And he said he had his manuscript of his father. His father had written his autobiography, finished it late in life, even after a stroke, and was editing and wanted to know if I could help. I said, yes, sir, come on. So that's when I met John Hope Franklin, about 95, 96. And he did not know his own story. He did not know the story of his family beyond his dad. So we went down to the archives, same place you went, but in those days it was all on microfilm. We pulled out the reels of microfilm from the Chickasaw and Choctaw Freedmen. And I got his name. He still had a number because the allotment had passed down to him, the, the land and the nation. And so when I, I was reeling down, and I'll never forget, I was on the machine. He was standing right behind me. And all of a sudden he says, there's my aunt. There's my aunt. And he discovered his family that moment. It's still like it happened 10 minutes ago. It was that vivid to me that here was this great historian discovering in his own family history yeah. right at that moment, and so worked with him. But anyway, that story starts with John Hope's grandfather, David Franklin, who was born in the 1820s. Uh, he was born a free black man in the South. His dad had purchased his freedom. So it must have been a man of some uh, ability, probably a fortunate situation. We don't know the circumstances, but somehow he bought his freedom worked his way out of that. Uh, David grew up in that family, married a lady named Millie Colbert, who was a mixed blood, uh, one quarter Choctaw, so she could trace her lineage to the Choctaw Nation. Today, Tom Colbert is on the Oklahoma Supreme Court, good friend of mine, used to be a basketball buddy of mine back in the, the old days. But Tom comes from this same family down in southeastern Oklahoma. So here you have David Franklin marrying into the Colbert clan, uh, and the Colberts are the merchants of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations, so they do well. David has a lot of ability. Uh, we know by 19, or 1856, they have a farm near Paul's Valley. That's really rich land there in the Washita River Valley. And the Choctaws and Chickasaws were gradually moving farther west because in the 1850s, you still had Comanches raiding into the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations. Fort Cobb would have been the fort trying to keep the Comanches out. But as the Comanches are defeated, uh, some of the Chickasaws and Choctaws are moving farther out. Well, that's what David Franklin was doing. Uh, But here comes the Civil War. 
and I always like to talk about challenges, opportunities in our lives. Uh, here he had a challenge. He decided he would fight for his own freedom. So he joins the Union forces. He fights for his own freedom in the Indian Home Guard and survives the Civil War. Comes home. By this time, the, the Plains tribes are being defeated, confined to reservations, and he moves out to the southern part of the Arbuckle Mountains. So mm -hmm. visualize in your mind the Arbuckles. You don't think of that as Indian country so much. But here's this Chickasaw, Choctaw, African-American family, and he does well. He's uh, B.C. Is, grows up on that farm. Uh, his dad is successful. His dad is, has two different farms. He has three hired hands. He has over 300 acres in row crops, plus all of his, his herds of cattle and horses and mules that he's trading. He has a nine-room log house, not a cabin, but a nine-room, which is the same size house that Will Rogers is growing up in, in near Talala in mm. the Cherokee Nation about the same time. Uh, and so a nine-room house, which was, would have been a big spread. He's a member of the Texas Cattlemen's Association, which means that he could walk into any place in Gainesville, Texas, which would have been the closest big town, and strike a deal with a handshake of his hand. He would have been treated as an equal in that community because he gives you a good rancher, tough. And he starts buying books, and he raises his family. Uh, well, one of his sons was B.C. Franklin, born in 1879, the same year Will Rogers is born mm -hmm. in Talala in the Cherokee Nation. So you have these mixed-blood kids growing up in Indian Territory. But B.C. grows up there. He becomes a cowboy. He becomes a farmer. He learns about that, but he's smart. And of all of David's sons and daughters, he's the one that takes to books. The Chickasaw Nation would turn their back on their ex-slaves and descendants. They would not give them land. The only one of the tribes that did not give land to their descendant. And so uh, there were no schools for the African-American children. Well, fortunately, religious people out of the, the, the especially New York, Pennsylvania, create Dawes Academy for these African-American kids growing up in this community. And B.C. gets to go to school, and he's good at it. He's a good writer. He voraciously reads. He, he walks to towns. Ardmore would have been the closest big town, borrows books, becomes educated, uh, and they do well enough and have the financial ability by breaking that chain of cycle of poverty. He gets to go to college in Nashville and Atlanta, earns a degree in law, comes back to his home thinking, I'm going to go back into this multicultural society of Indians and African-Americans and whites and Mexicans, and do well. What he comes back to in 1907 is a new state, where mm. Senate Bill Number One, passed by legislature, was the Jim Crow Bill that we've got to separate the races. So the culture of the old South, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, is is put over this old Indian territory of really a multicultural society. And suddenly, there says, no, you have to follow these new rules. And so, as an attorney in town. He can't get clients because African-Americans couldn't serve on juries because you had to be a registered voter. They were denied the vote through a variety of means. They could not serve on juries. And so with an all-white jury, if you're a, an African-American businessman and you need an attorney, you're going to hire a white attorney who knows all those people in the jury. 
So and he so, came back. So let me. So he came back to Ardmore, to Ardmore, which was going backwards now because of Senate Bill Number One, because we became a state. So he thought he was coming back to a place that was being progressive, that was that was multicultural when he left, and he came back, and the law was telling them to know separate. Right, and in, and you have to. I put myself in BC's mind, and reading the autobiography, you can kind of get in his head and kind of ramble around. But he felt like he was just like any other smart young man, right? That looking for opportunity in the West, and suddenly he st- said, "Well, no, you're not just a an ambas- ambitious, smart young man. You're an African American young man with these limitations. You can only live in these places. You can only go these live." Uh, go in that railroad car. All these limitations are posed. And he's at the point where he says, no longer. I cannot live like that. So he tries to make it in Ardmore for five years. Then he goes to an all-black town of Rentiesville. Rentiesville's story is in the Old Creek Nation, Muscogee Creek Nation. The Muscogee Creeks had a lot of slaves, as did the Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaw, Seminoles, all institution of slavery was here. In 1866, punished for siding with the Confederacy during the war, they had to agree to give land to their former slaves and their descendants. And as some of those African Americans took their allotments, so they got to choose. And this is only happening from 1898 to 1904. So you get the first agreements with the tribes in 1898 with the Choctaws, Chickasaws. Cherokees are the last in 1904. Well, suddenly... These African-American squatters, so to be, on tribal land, suddenly have title to the land. And so if you're from a big family, all your aunts and uncles, your cousins, you're all saying, well, where are you going to take your allotment? Well, we're going to go to this watershed where we've been running cattle. And so they start taking these allotments. Suddenly you put 20 families on good land at a time when agriculture is doing better than it ever had done. This is the golden age of farming from 1898, just happens to be that way, to 1918. And they're doing well. Well, suddenly you get 20 families. You need a school. You need you have enough work for an attorney. you got a town. You, you can have a town, a newspaper. Right, right. Suddenly you've got a town. Well, that happened. Of course, the biggest would have been Bowley. That was in the Muscogee Creek Nation, over 5,000 people. Booker T. Washington came there to give a speech saying, this is an example of what we need to do as a race, not just individuals, but as a race. And But Rendysville was another of those towns. And B.C. Franklin, frustrated by being said, no, we're going to put you behind that brick wall of segregation. He says, no. He goes to where he thinks he's going to have this freedom and this opportunity. And so he moves to Rentiesville and is very successful. He becomes an a agricultural agent. He becomes postmaster. Uh, he, gets, he has a farm. So he's, farmers typically can't get farming out of their blood, even if it's a garden. They still got to do it. <laughs> right. And so he's still farming, can't quit that. And he's a lawyer, and he can get on the train there at Rennie'sville and go down to Eufaula, which is the county seat at the time, and do his law. So he's got this. What he discovers, though, in Rentiesville was a different separated community. It's not separated by race. In that little town, it's separated by faith. You had the Baptist, the majority, and the Methodist. And B.C. Franklin was a Methodist and a strong Methodist. Mm-hmm. His parent, he had ministers in his family that, you know, had served the people. And so he found he was discriminated against because he was a Methodist wow. on who would advertise in his newspaper, who would hire him as a client if he wasn't in the church. And so even today, and 
21st Century Oklahoma. I just did a series of three interviews with Reverend or Pastor Jemison. Mm-hmm. As a Methodist, I always say Reverend. I have to remember Pastor Jemison, who's a great man, one of my heroes that I've gotten to know Saint well. St. John's. Because the churches are the are the that's the glue that right. holds a community together. Well, it was that way then in Rentiesville, and the town was split over those two churches, and so. Uh, he was getting frustrated again and looking for opportunity. Well, in the meantime, he starts having a family and has two children, one of them uh, born in uh, 1915 is John Hope Franklin. And John Hope is named for a white man who B.C. had befriended and helped him in college. So here was a man, B.C., again, crawling around in his brain again. As he sees people who are his heroes, it's not limited to just african-americans right it's who had a good heart who really believed who was part of our community and john hope one of his former teachers who helped him kept him in college he honored him by saying my firstborn son is going to be named after that white man so here's john hope growing up well in 1921 the economy is booming after world war one and so bc says i'm looking for a new opportunity that is limited here he says tulsa it's the oil capital of the world. You've got these oil strikes on all sides, the biggest refineries, the biggest banks, the biggest pipeline companies, the ex- exploration drilling company. He says, that's where I'm going to go, and, and it's a growing African-American community north of the tracks called Greenwood. We'll get back to that story later when we talk about the Tulsa I feel Race where you're Massacre. Going. I feel where you're going. And so he moves there in the spring of 1921, looking for this freedom that he hadn't found in Ardmore, hadn't found in Rentiesville. And suddenly he's part of this dynamic, growing community where African-Americans are building hotels and movie theaters and building and platting their own neighborhoods and just doing well, and he's part of that. John Hope and his mother have stayed in Rentiesville until he can get established. Fortunately, he's not there when the, the race massacre begins on May 21st, 1921. Uh, To fast forward through that, we can get back to that story. But B.C. Franklin, again, had to make a choice, as all of us do in our lives. Do we stand our ground just like those soldiers in the 1st Kansas Colored Regiment? Are those 14 kids with Claire Looper, do we stand our ground and speak up, or do we pull back? Well, B.C. had to make a choice. He says, I'm not retreating from this. This is my community now. I'm he sets up his law office in a tent because his offices were burned down. And he sets up in a tent. We have a photograph of his tent that's there in this burned-out wasteland of, of, a, of a community that's been a victim of a massacre. And he starts defending those African-Americans who file suits that their house was looted or that the, the sheriff sent people in to take— And they start filing lawsuits, and he stays, and he starts working for his community. Later, in another part of the story, I became chairman of the Tulsa Race— at that time, we called it the Race Riot Commission in 1998. I looked into those cases. What happened to those cases? I wanted to find out and Mm -hmm. make that part of the dialogue. They were all dismissed in the 1930s. There was not one lawsuit that was ever adjudicated to completion. Not one person, white or black, received a penny for the losses during that race massacre. But B.C. was fighting that entire time. Later in his life, would write, well, that gets to the next chain in this story. His son, who was six years old at the time of the massacre, 
But they move to Tulsa because B.C. decides to stand his ground. The community grows again. And that's going to be part of the story. The new museum we're building in Tulsa, I'm on that executive committee. I can talk about that later, why that's important. But uh, here comes John Hope, grows up in this divided community. And B.C., I mean, the uh, John Hope's, the quick version of his story is that smart kid goes to Booker T. Washington, the only high school he could attend in Tulsa in a segregated community. But because it's segregated, the best, most talented black musicians, the best, most talented black writers and black humanists and science teachers, they have no choice. They can't go teach in all these high schools. They have to teach at Booker T. Washington. So they get some of the best teachers in the entire community. Whereas in the white community, they're spread out. The same here in Oklahoma City with Douglas. With Douglas. So right. the reason for so many incredible people coming through Douglas and being taught by Azealia Bro, you know, the Charlie Christian story, you go on and on, is that if you had that talent, you had few choices, so you taught there. Well, B.C. had the advantage of that kind of an education at Booker T. Uh, goes on, gets his college degree, and decides... He wants to go to graduate school, and although he has to work his way through as a cook in a fraternity house, he gets his Ph.D. at Harvard and uh, gets out after World War II, is the first African-American in American history to become a, a full professor at an all-white university. Of course, you had wow. black historians at the black colleges. The, we now call them traditionally black colleges, like Langston, some outstanding educators there. But he does—and then— he is in the right spot at the right time. Knopf, the big publishing house, says it's time for us to have a textbook on the African American experience in America. There was no textbook. And, and in, what year was this? This was this would have been in nineteen fifties. Okay. So in the nineteen fifties, as you get Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, and you get the Clara Loopers, the stories, and all of these civil rights, Thurgood Marshall, all of this is swirling. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr is doing his thing at the time. And so this is a period people are aware, oh, yeah, the textbooks that have no story of African-Americans is wrong. This awareness that we all need to come to. And so cannot give them credit. We need a textbook just on the African-American experience. And John Hope gets that contract as a PhD from Harvard who's lived this experience. It's who he is. This is the Mm -hmm. cultural baggage he's carrying around with him daily. And so he writes the book and titles it From Slavery to Freedom. To this day, it's the book I used when I was in graduate school in the 1970s. Today, it's in like its seventh or eighth edition, sold over six million copies. Wow. It is the book. And then John Hope would go on from that to be a noted humanist and spokesman. He was the historical consultant for a lawsuit working with Thurgood Marshall uh, trying to desegregate the schools of Topeka, Kansas in 1954, mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Topeka. Right. He would have been working with Roscoe Dungy here in Oklahoma and the story of Ada Lois Sipiel Fisher. Uh, and then he eventually ended up a, a professor at Duke and celebrated. President Clinton said, this man is an American hero, puts him on that pantheon of other winners of, of, the, of the Award of Freedom. And... And then he becomes part of my life here in Oklahoma, affecting the way we do our history, just as we're building the History Center. And then after the History Center opened in 2005, before he passed away about four years later, he gave five speeches at the History Center. Every time I would call him and say, Dr. Franklin, I need you one more time. 
we're trying to prove to the African-American community that we mean what we say, not just words, but action. We'd done all these exhibits. We were getting the, I'd hired Bruce Fisher, but I says, we've got to really do something big and, and you can help us do that. So he came back several times and we'd, give, we'd fill it up, 800 people. Right. Largely African-American people would come to the History Center, their museum. The reason we had the meeting yesterday on the Clara Looper Freedom Center there with leaders from the community and, a, and a, the director of one foundation considering giving money to it is that the History Center is a place that we can all come together and tell our story. So John Hope Franklin ended up doing so much, but his story would have been different without B.C.'s story, would have been different without David's story, would have been different without the Colbert story and his own family brought from Africa to become slaves. We've got to understand this progression and how the memory changes each generation. And then the next generation overcomes the challenges, seizes the opportunities, and they do what they can to make a difference. And John Hope Franklin is, is one of the American heroes of all time. Uh, and his son is now at the Smithsonian helping build the new museum of African-American history there. Who I met. Who I met uh, when I was walking through uh, the History Center there in, in D.C. Uh, I hear him giving a tour, and when he introduced himself, I went, wait a minute. This Could this be who Dr. Blackburn is always talking about, who introduced me to this book, who which I've read? Uh, uh, and there, there's something about that book. He's, B.C., was it? Did this, what did B.C. stand for? Uh uh, was it Buck, Buck? Buck C. Buck Colbert. Buck Colbert. Yeah, Buck Colbert. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, I remember, and they talked about uh, being called uh, boy and Buck and that kind of thing, and why that was significant, and why they went with the initials uh, instead of the names. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. But I'm not going to give that away. You have to read the book, and I know that's what you're <laughs> you're promoting is to read that book. Cece, what questions do you have that from that? Awesome. Yeah, you know. Um, this is fascinating. The one of the last things you talked about, you you referred to memory, and you talked about how you know history basically is about building one life upon other lives, you know, and the experiences of other lives. And I I wonder if you're able to just generally expound upon the importance of, of memory. Um, a little bit for us because I think, especially right now, we're in a time when so when one of the talking points is you know whenever there's talk about race and um, racial injustice and racial unrest, there's a there's a part of the population that wants to say, well, you know, we just need to get over it, we just need to forget about it, we just need to you know press forward. Um, and I know that in Oklahoma, and we might get to this, you know, in another in another um, section of what we, when we're talking another series, but I'm sorry, another part of our um, of this series, uh, the sundown laws, right, of Oklahoma, and there's so many people that I've come across when I'm talking about race in Oklahoma that say, you know, well, that was a long time ago. That's not the law anymore, et cetera. Can you talk of just a little bit about what you think about the importance of memory and how important it is for us to understand where we are now based upon where we were. Yes. Typically, memory in a family will only last three generations. Then that 
fourth generation kind of gets lost in the mist of history. And too many times it's romanticized, like with my grandmother telling me about my great-grandfather, that fourth generation back. I grew up thinking there was some hero who had been fighting and captured by the Yankees and, you know, dove into the Chesapeake Bay and grabbed some turnip peels that the Yankee soldiers had thrown in there in his best meal ever. You know, I grew up with those kind of stories, kind of romanticized. Well, the rest of the story yeah. about the slave owners in South Carolina and the community he comes from was never part of that, that conversation. So typically, if, if memory has survived, sometimes it's romanticized, it's, it's only partial. Uh, I think it's incumbent on all of us as members of a family to say we've got to save those stories. We've got to understand the prejudice of my great-grandfather and his willingness to fight for a cause that I believe so strongly was an evil part of our mm-hmm. culture. And so coming to that realization and learning more about it, we've all got to, to, to count on our elders to teach us. Hopefully they're teaching us the right things. But mm-hmm. I guess I'm a child of the 60s too, the, you know, the, the flower children, the, mm-hmm. the, the hippies coming out of the beaten, is that the Socratic method, challenging everything, asking why. I, that's mm-hmm. part of my culture outside of family. And so I'd turn to my aunts and uncles. I'd say, well, you know, why? Why were you like this? And, you know, and be, mm-hmm. of course, they did not want me asking why. They'd been comfortable with their own cultural baggage they'd inherited the way they believed. And here was this, you know, young, long-haired kid with a beard in the 1970s saying, why? And are you sure? Mm-hmm. And I think all of us have to question memory because— you can get, you know, next week, all of us in this room can get back together and say, you know, recreate what we went through. We're all going to remember it differently. It's filtered through our own lens. Right. Uh, so it's important that we, we, we stand on memory in terms of connecting us, but knowing that we've got to ask questions. We have to challenge when we think something is not right. And just like B.C. Franklin having the courage to stay in Tulsa after that massacre— We've got to have the courage to say, well, Grandma, I don't agree. That's not quite yeah. right. It's different now, and we've got to change. And then hopefully my grandchild uh-huh. will tell me, Granddad, you've got this, or Papa, what he calls me. He says, you got this prejudice against the digital world and that cell phone. You don't carry your cell phone. You've got to ca-. Well, he's trying to change me and say, no, times have changed. And so we've got to find this middle ground of respecting our elders, learning from them, but also questioning and then learning That's the right. truth. Let me ask you one more thing before I guess we need to close out soon, unless you have some other stuff for us to know about this subject. Um, no, considering the, the romanticism, you know, when we talk about how history sometimes romanticized. Uh, I think a lot of people grapple with what to do with ancestry, you know, what to do when you have, um, a great grandfather who fought for the Confederate, you know, that I, I, and that's reasonable to me to grapple with that as a person who's had that experience and as a historian who understands um, the background, so much of the background, how have, what do, what do you do with that? And how do you encourage people to, um, to reconcile um, or live in tension or whatever it is with ancestry? Well, I think a good way to do it is to share it with uh, the next generation. Share those stories and get the new perspectives and be open about it. 
uh, and I, got, I guess I get back to that, uh, that metaphor of giving, is that we've got to be givers. We have to always worry about others. Let's, let's have that dialogue and get the perspectives of young people. Uh, when Bruce Fisher and I became such good friends in, in 98, and then I hired him full-time in 99, he was with me yesterday. In fact, he was sitting just to my left as we were meeting on the Clara Looper Freedom Center. Uh, getting to know Bruce, uh, he shared stories with me that are really uncomfortable for him being chased by white kids at Northeast High School when he was part of that first generation to, de- to, be, to integrate Northeast. Uh, and I can tell him stories uh, that are uncomfortable for me about, you know, feeling such pride in that Confederate veteran. But what, we, what it's helped us do over the years is to respect each other and to know that we've both changed. We both have different perspectives. We both learned so much. And uh, I just think dialogue. When I was chairman of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in 98 and 99, uh, and Dr. Franklin reinforced this when he first came and gave the opening speech, is that we've got to have this dialogue. Uh, we've got to be talking about it. And instead of just letting it build up as resentment. And, you know, we do this in our own lives. If, if we feel like someone has done something wrong for us, we, can, we hold on to that and have this feeling of vengeance and, and fear and hate. It's going to fester and become a cancer uh, if we can have a dialogue and work it through. You know, that should be fundamental for a man and wife. That should be the same for teacher and student. But I think we've got to reach out beyond the, the pigment of our skin or our own backgrounds and even with our own family and say, we've got to have some dialogue and be open to it. I was fortunate to have some aunts and uncles who encouraged that kind of dialogue and would give me books as a student on philosophy and understanding you know, the way that we should live our lives. And, and I really believe that the kernel of Christianity is to you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The, the golden rule. Uh, if we really follow that, we will have dialogue, and we can we can deal with those echoes from the past that have lived in our family memory, things that we've learned, and things we have to question. So if we'll go through life with curiosity, with love in our hearts, I think we can overcome those problems. I really do, and I believe that, that we can do that as a, a society and a culture. We have people who want to take us backward. And we have to struggle and say, no, that's not right. And, you know, express ourselves in the ballot box. Express ourselves with who we're going to donate to, what's important to us. Uh, I think it gets back to we all can make a difference. It may be at the family level, maybe at the community level. It could be American history, like a John Hope Franklin, or it could be world history, uh, like an Abraham Lincoln. Um, but uh, dialogue is where it all has to start. This show is all about dialogue, and we're going to end, but i got to ask you, uh, thinking about, I mean, you said a couple of times that you're just trying to get into Mr. Franklin's head a little bit, and I feel like you've got a good grasp of that, and I respect your opinion, and this is all opinion. What would frustrate him the most about today's, uh, the history that's being made today? What would he celebrate today, and then what would he, what would he be most frustrated about today? Uh, I think he would be very please that the laws have changed. What I think he would be frustrated with is that there are people who may understand the law in their minds, but it's not in their hearts yet. Mm. And until we get equal opportunity 
and love in our hearts and everyone says that, no, these are my brothers and sisters, and I don't care about the pigment of a person's skin or their economic background or what religion, uh, where they come from in the world. You know, we don't need to build walls. That's right. become a metaphor, Moshe. We don't need to build walls between us. We need to tear down those walls. Right. I think that BC would be very frustrated with the dialogue going up over immigration, that no, we should not give an opportunity to people who need a helping hand. How can we give to them and help them get out of the cycle of poverty, the way his family was trying to struggle to get out of the cycle of poverty? What experience he had, he would say, that is still happening in the 21st century. And we would have to say, unfortunately, it is. But fortunately, I think that the majority has been won over. I think we're going, and as a historian, and maybe just being an optimist at heart, we are making progress. Yes, we have, you know, these acts of injustice that we have to say, this is not right. What can we do about it? And we have this incremental change. But we've made such progress uh, over the last 250 years of American history. I see that we're going the right direction. We have people who try to get us off off that course. But again, we have individuals willing to stand up. You know, listening to former President Barack Obama just two weeks ago brought tears. My wife and I were listening to that, and tears came to our eyes. This man understands. Unfortunately, he was willing to stand up at, at a critical time in our history and say, there is a better way. Yeah. And you're referring to his uh, his his conversation or his his eulogy for yes. uh, Mr. Uh, Lewis, Mr. Uh, John Lewis. Right. Yes. And it was just touching. And we should all take that to heart and say there is a better way if we can have the dialogue, if we can reach out and look at, at everyone in the world and understand there's this universal truth that the way we should be behaving you know, different religions go about it different ways. There have been different people who understood it, whether it's the Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or Jesus. They've understood a part of this universal truth that we should be living, and they say there's a better way, and we can tap into that truth and be better individuals, make a better community, and we've got to to follow that. And so I think B.C., as a, as a Christian man, would be disheartened a little bit that more people have not bought into that. He'd say, wow, it's taken a long time. Uh, but he would also see the progress. And as Bob Blackburn, historian who studied this now for 40 years, right. <laughs> and I can say I've seen the progress in my own lifetime uh, and hopefully see more in the rest of my years remaining. But I think B.C. would say, well, it has come a long way. An African-American president, he would be shocked, right. but I think very pleased. Uh, the fact that we have people on the streets saying we can do better, uh, he would be pleased just like he, he did in Tulsa in 1921 saying, you know, we face dangers in this world. This could happen again. B.C. told me, that, or uh, John Hope Franklin, in his speech basically said, because I was exploring why was it so quiet for so many years. I called it a uh, conspiracy of silence. The white community was embarrassed. Of course, the Chamber of Commerce did not want to promote it because it's not good for business. But then the black community, why did they not demand that it be part of the— t And John Hope helped me understand. He said, Bob, we thought it could happen again. 
Mm-hmm. We understood the hatred on the other side of the tracks and that this could happen again. And then secondly, we felt a sense of pride in those men who went to the white part of town and stood up for Dick Rowland and put their lives on the line and were willing to, to enter into this battle. He says, we were proud of those young men saying, no more. We're not going to let right. another brother be lynched. He says that pride on the streets or in the public voice would have been a, you would have been a target for terrorism lynching. Right, and you would have been know a target. He was guilty or not? They just saying we're just going for justice for what's right. Exactly, and so yeah. he said we did not bring it up because fear it could happen again. In our pride that we expressed, but we couldn't express it publicly. White community, so let's forget about it. Yeah, until we have this dialogue. I think BC would be very pleased that we've come this far with the dialogue, the fact that we're going to have a new museum on Greenwood Rising, telling this entire story uh, that is being run by people in the African-American community, reaching out to some of us who can be resource people. But to me, it's not just the Greenwoods Museum. It's our museum. Every Oklahoman, every American should feel a sense of pride that we are investing federal money, state money, Private, private money, money. Mm-hmm. it's all coming together to tell this story that is dialogue that we can share this with future generations. And so as these families are grappling with it, I said, well, let's go try to understand it at that museum. Come to the History Center. See the story of John Hope Franklin, the 1st Kansas Color Regiment. See the story of Clara Looper. Uh, we have a reproduction of Clara's living room where these conversations were happening. We have the digitized versions of her radio show where she is the master of dialogue. Let's talk about it. That's the way we should all be living in a daily way. That's fantastic. Cece, I'm going to close it out by saying thank you to Dr. Blackburn. We so appreciate your time, and we're looking forward to our next conversation, episode number three of four, coming on race in Oklahoma, the history of race in Oklahoma. I'm Waylon Cubitt, and for my friend Cece Jones-Davis, as always, we're creating common ground for the common good. Until next time, thank you for listening to United Voice Oklahoma Podcast. Thank you for listening to the United Voice Oklahoma Podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you heard, please take time to leave us a review and share it with your friends and family. It really does help us to get these conversations out to more people. This podcast is a production of United Voice Oklahoma, one of the initiatives of the Stronger Together movement, and is produced by OKC Good and Reese Black. For more stories promoting a healthy relationship on race in Oklahoma, follow United Voice Oklahoma on Facebook or visit unitedvoiceok.org.